We're in Joshua 12. In Joshua 12, in some ways, it marks the end of the first half of Joshua and all of the conquest passages. Because of that, it is a little bit peculiar in the sense that we're just going to have a list of names and places. And these are the list of names and places of those whom the Israelites conquered as they came into the promised land. So this is a challenge for anyone trying to read it because out loud because I'm going to try and pronounce these somewhere between Hebrew and English. Uh, but forgive me if I don't say it quite right in Hebrew or in English. Um, and then we'll really just kind of get into some, a little bit of explanation, but mainly some application um, regarding the, uh, the list of the kings here that have been conquered by Moses and Joshua. But just understand, if you're here for the first time, you're sort of jumping into the conclusion of uh, a lot of passages about how the Israelites came and, and came into the, uh, the promised land and God gave them uh, the victory. So, Joshua chapter 12. Yes. yes. The Israelites here would be the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and so all those descendants of those 12 sons, they would be considered the Israelites here. Yeah, for, for the sake of, yeah, this passage that, that will do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, that is to the uh, west, uh, from or uh, the east, sorry, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinneroth or uh, Kinneroth. <laughs> Oh boy. All right. The Arabah, by the way, is the Dead Sea. The Sea of um, Kinneroth is um, the Sea of Galilee, all right, eastward. And in the direction of uh, Beth uh, Jeshemoth to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selica and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Maakathites and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of Yahweh, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Gadir, one. The king of Hormah, 
one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hatzor, one. The king of Shimron, Meron, one. The king of Akshaf, one. The king of Ta'anak, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kedesh, one. The king of Jokneam in Carmel, one. The king of Dor in Naphath Dor, one. The king of Goim in Galilee, one. The king of Tirzah, one. In all, 31 kings. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a tongue twister. You do do that three or four times and you'll be able to, you know, do any speech class. So what is going on here? Well, in a way, the map on the back if you look at the back of the handout, it does a lot of work, okay? You can see there for yourself kind of the regions that we're talking about and the kings, um, but there's not going to be a test on this. You know, name the 31 kings that Joshua conquered. It's not anything like that. Um, so we're just going to make a few observations and applications because if, if I were to ask you, <laughs> you know, what what... How does this minister to your soul right now? All these dead pagan kings, it would take you a while. So uh, actually what I am going to do today really is that is what I had to do is go through this. So what are the things here that really minister to me? Here's some things, but I would encourage you after this sermon to not just say, well, I hope I don't have to deal with that until next year when I go through my Bible reading plan, but really Go through and think about this passage. You don't necessarily have to read through each name, but just ask yourself questions like, well, why did God put this here? What did this mean to the Israelites when they read these names? Why did Joshua think this was important? Why did God think this was important? It's, it's a helpful way to try and understand or make the connections between biblical texts like this, which seem to not have a whole lot of connection with your life right now, uh, and what God intends to grow in us, all right? So today or tonight, um, just some ways that these passage kind of spoke to me as I studied it and read other uh, theologians and commentators, but I hope uh, you'll be able to come up with some applications of your own. So just a couple commentaries first, and then we'll, we'll sort of just get, I think, three applications, at least, again, for me, that, that I could come up with. Just for a matter of geography, again, uh, Kinneroth is the Sea of Galilee, and the Arabah, the Sea of Arabah, is the Dead Sea. So if you look on your map, you see these are the main bodies of water in Israel, uh, Kinneroth in the north, and uh, the Arabah, the Dead Sea in the south. And it kind of forms a natural border. So you have things that are happening on the east side of the Jordan, which is what's mentioned first, and you have things that happen on the west side of the Jordan, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. So these two kings that are mentioned at the beginning as those whom Moses had conquered were on the east side of the Jordan River. You have uh, Sihon and you have Og, the king of Bashan. Uh, If you want to turn to Numbers 21, you can, um, but that is where you see historically, when Moses had conquered uh, both Sihon and Og. Now, what I think is interesting, because what I think is interesting is not not what happens in Numbers 21, but in Numbers 20, okay? So, Numbers 21, that's when these kings are destroyed. But look what happens leading up to that. In, In Numbers 19, you still have law. Like, what are... 
the purification rites, what are the duties of the priests, and so on. In Numbers 20, it begins with them in the wilderness and Miriam. If you remember Miriam, Moses' sister, she dies. Right after that, you have the incident where Moses uh, and the Israelites are without water, and God tells him to speak to the water, and the water will come out of the rock. It's happened before. God has done this before. But what did Moses do? He strikes the rock and commands the water to come out. Now, it seems like a small thing to do. But for this, God said, Moses, I'm not going to let you into the promised land with the Israelites because he was demonstrating um, really kind of an anger towards the Israelites and in a way, a disobedience to the Lord. Not in a way, but a disobedience to the Lord. Um, It's ironic because if you remember at the beginning of Numbers, Moses had pleaded on the behalf of the Israelites. And here he is now frustrated with them. And God says, you know, you're done. You're, you're, you're not going to be able to lead the Israelites into the promised land. It will be Joshua instead. Well, right after that, they're going through the land and the Edomites, who are the, the descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the children of promise and Esau, the brother who gave away uh, his birthright. Um, his people did not let the Israelites pass through. They were kind of holding a grudge there and um, it's something that when you read it, you're supposed to see that there is, um, um, there's no brotherly affection here between the Edomites and the Israelites. So they have to go around. Well, right after that, Moses' brother Aaron dies. Aaron was the one who was really the spokesperson for Moses in the Exodus. Remember, Moses said to God, uh, no, you got the wrong guy. You want me to talk to the Pharaoh, but I'm, my tongue is all messed up. I can't, I can't help you here, God. And so God says, okay, then Aaron is going to be your mouthpiece. Well, Aaron, his right-hand man, he dies. Um, then you come to a confrontation between the Israelites and the king of Arad, who is a Canaanite. And this is all east of the Jordan. And they end up taking some of the Israelites captive. So Moses, he pleads with God, God, please give us victory over them. And God ends up giving them the victory. So you have a a kind of a, in the midst of all that drama, you have finally kind of a positive moment where God gives them victory. Right after that, (laughs) you get the incident with the bronze serpent. If you remember, um, the people are grumbling and complaining. So God sets upon the Israelites serpents that are biting them and killing them. Do you remember that story? That's here. And so once the people realize that they're not, you know, uh, honoring God, they're not being thankful to God, uh, Moses, uh, God, is t- uh, God tells Moses, raise up a bronze serpent. And anyone who looks at that bronze serpent who's been bitten by the serpent, they will not, uh, they will not perish. And this actually comes up in John chapter 3 um, when... when um, when Jesus is talking about how the Son of Man must be lifted up in the same way. So you might think it's weird. Like, why do you have to look up at the instrument of your death in order to be made alive? Well, Jesus died on the cross, an instrument of death. If you look to the instrument of death and believe in the power to be healed or forgiven of your sin then you will be forgiven. So there's, there's an analogy there. Anyway, so the bronze serpent happens there. That's, this is actually, I didn't realize the, the uh, sequence of events here when I was studying this. Uh, after that is when the king 
King Sihon and King Og are, are conquered or killed by, um, by Moses and the Israelites. So I think it's important to know kind of the setup because you're seeing a lot of disappointments. You're seeing Moses, who has screwed up royally, can't even enter the promised land. His sister died. His brother died. They uh, were attacked by the king of Arad, and they, then they were um, smitten by these serpents because of their grumbling and complaining. They needed a win. They needed a victory, almost literally. And that is what happens uh, here when they face King Sihon and King Og of Bashan. So I, I just thought that was, that was good to know that, that context because um, these victories against Sihon and Og demonstrates God's faithfulness to Israel despite their faithlessness. So a notable thing, at least about Og in particular, is that he was a Rephaim. Rephaim means a terrible one. And this seems to be, the Rephaim seem to be a race of giants related at least some way to, if you know the term Nephilim in uh, the Bible, that were these race of giants. So in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 20 through 21, it talks about how uh, Og was conquered or defeated by the Israelites. And it mentions kind of an odd thing. It says that his bed was 13 feet long and six feet wide. Now, why even mention something like that? Well, it's to say that this man was huge, and they defeated someone of some status and stature. He was the last of the Rephaim. It would have been a notable victory, in other words, by Moses. So I think surely one of the things that we're supposed to see when we see this list, at least the initial list of, of kings that Moses has, has conquered, you're supposed to see God's faithfulness and his grace. Moses had screwed up. The Israelites are grumbling and complaining. Bronze servants had killed a bunch of them. They're under the gun militarily. They are, are still wanderers in the desert. And at the time where King Sihon and King Og show up, um, it would have been a very discouraging fight to be up against because everything has been kind of awful up until that point and disappointing. Um, I can relate to that. There are just some weeks where it's just tough. It just piles. Um, hard times pile upon trials and difficulties. And then you got to face some big task. You got to preach on Sunday or, or whatever it is. And it can just feel almost overwhelming. Uh, but I can tell you, God has, has always been faithful. No matter what kind of week I've had, no matter how awful I've been or how awful people have been to me, God has always given me the grace to get through, not to make myself the hero of the story. It's God. I got nothing left. I got no more juice in the tank sometimes. But God has always been faithful, always been gracious to bring victory. Not always in my timing, that's for sure. Not always in the way that I think the victory is going to come. Sometimes even despite my um, impatience, and in some ways, I mean, I saw this happen when I was in the army. Like, there's, there was times where I just did not want to do anything for the Lord. I was in a very numbers, Israelites kind of station in my life. And God still used me. I, I can't even explain in words adequately how he could still use someone that was almost being reluctant to be of any use to the Lord. But that's God's faithfulness. There's, there's Times that you think there's no way that something good can happen in the midst of the difficulties or in the midst of our own sin. 
But nothing communicates grace than God using us and blessing us when we deserve it the least. So these victories over King Sihon and King Og, they don't, they don't happen in a vacuum. They're, they're something that uh, come as almost the conclusion of a very tough time that Moses was happening. So here it's listed as this notable, victorious thing that Moses did. But we have to see that it wasn't at Moses' most shining time of his life, um, personally for him. Interestingly, right after this uh, is the whole story with Balaam and the talking donkey and all of that. So when you think of like Bible stories and just setting them in their context, uh, that all happens in the text right after the other. The waters of Meribah where he strikes a rock, the bronze serpents, Sihon, Og, and then Balaam. So that's all right there. Just read your Bibles. I, I, I didn't, <laughs> I know I read that not too long ago too, but I was like, oh, those things all happen right after the other. So an incentive there to read your Bibles and, and read the context. Um, so that's one application. It's just understanding his faithfulness, even despite our faithlessness, the ability of God to give grace, even in those moments we don't think we deserve it, or it's life is too hard um, for anything really to shine through. But God is faithful. God is going to use us, maybe not always our timing, um, not always in the way that we think, but even when we deserve it least, God is going to come through. Next, um, we see the list of kings that Joshua slew. And you see that it's a much longer list, right? Moses has two chalked up to his name, and uh, Joshua has, what, 29 if there's 31 total. So uh, I like what one commentator said, Joseph Parker said, Moses seems to figure but poorly in the record of slaughter. He killed but two kings and Joshua killed 31. I'm sorry, so 31 was just uh, Joshua's. So who are the kings that Joshua killed compared with the kings slain by Moses? The two which Moses slew have famous names. They were great and mighty men. The 31 slain by Joshua did not add up to the two slain by Moses. Thus, work is estimated by quality. Uh, The point isn't to compare in any case. When you read this, you're not supposed to think, well, Joshua must have been more faithful than Moses. He's got 31. Moses only has two. Look at the scoreboard. Who's the better or the more faithful uh, person? It's not the point, actually. The point is not to make a comparison between Moses and Joshua. Say who's better. Say who's worse. We've said this numerous times before. It's never been about Joshua or Moses. It's about God. God is the hero of the story. Not Moses, not Joshua. God is the one that is the consistent factor. You don't need Moses to succeed. This is a a huge issue in, in... in pastoral succession, a lot of churches don't survive the transition from a, one pastor to another. Oftentimes there's civil war almost, or, or people just leave. And sometimes that suggests, I'm not saying every church this is true, but that suggests that the people were there for the person, for Moses, but not for Joshua, right? But God has to be the one that we focus on. God has to be the one that's consistent, we may go through different phases of life to make that more personal, not just you know, pastoral succession in church. Right? You and I and, and many of you have gone through more phases of life than I have and different hurdles that you've overcome. Um, 
But for me, I mean, there's a season where it was just being a young man with youthful passions. And then there was the whole season where I'm trying to figure out what I want to do and what my career is going to be. And then I got married. And then there's the phase of my life where it's marriage and then family and having kids, you know, midlife crisis. At some point, I guess I get to look forward to an empty nest. Um, You know, uh, some of you, not me, you're going to have to go through menopause, you know, like, so there's different phases to your life. Through it all, there should be a constant. It should not be the case that at each phase of life, we are just changing who we're dependent on. Oh, I'm a child, so I depend on my my parents. Uh, When I get married, I depend upon my spouse. When I have kids, now my, my world revolves around my kids, and they get to tell me what to do. As I get older and I'm empty nest, now it's all about my friends or my hobbies. You see, if we just find ourselves in different phases gravitating towards different people and things to define our life meaning and purpose rather than God, we could be led all kinds of uh, directions. Even I, I see numerous times at these moments of transition, people will fall out of church. At these big moments of life, people will realize my whole life was actually about my kids. So the kids leave the the house, and I was only really going to church because I wanted my kids to go to church, and then the parents are gone. You, you know, you could, you could find that story many times. We need to let God be the lead in every stage and every phase of life. That's how Israel survived the transition from Moses to Joshua, because Joshua did this very faithful thing, which is to point them to the Lord, which is to keep reminding them to depend upon him. And Moses did the same to his credit. So it was not ever Joshua's intention or Moses' intention, at least not willingly or not, not when they're in the right mind, to, to create a dependence upon Moses and, and Joshua. No. Who is the hero of Joshua 12 and the victory over these pagan kings and nations? It's God. I mean, he used Moses. He used Joshua. But if we don't give the glory to God, you're going to miss something. You're going you're gonna to say that Only Joshua can keep this thing together. Only Moses can keep this thing together. Only this, you know, pastor or this church can keep my life together when I'm going through these stages. No, it has to be the Lord. It has to be him that is going to be our hero and our mainstay, our foundation, our hope. And I think that's one good application to draw uh, from this passage as well. All right. Um, Third third application, we do want to see that God is faithful and committed to his covenant. Now, this one's going to be a little bit tricky application um, because there is a little bit of a theological debate. But, um, but in Joshua, or Genesis chapter 15, uh, we have God, again, reiterating his promise to Abraham and making this covenant with him. Um, The first time he made this promise is in Genesis 12, and then he reiterates it in Genesis 15, and he essentially says, Abraham, I've chosen you to be the father of many nations, and from your children and your children's children will come a seed who will save and bless the world, and you you also from you will be a great nation who will be in a land. So we see that in Genesis 15, 18 through 21 in particular. He says, on that day... Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt 
to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, some of those are familiar because we saw them in Joshua uh, 12, verse 8. So, in a way, Genesis 15 seems to be, or at least is hinted at, at being fulfilled here at the time of Joshua. Now, the theological debate, and we're not going to get into all the details of it, is did Joshua actually claim all of the territory and land that, that God had promised to Abraham? Well, it's pretty clear that there's some kind of claim to laying hold of some of the promises of God in terms of the land. You look at the end, Joshua 21, verse 43 Joshua 21, 43, thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and Yahweh gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers, not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for Yahweh had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. Now, that does sure look like on the surface of it, that after Joshua 12, because from 13 to, uh, to this passage is just a lot of the inheritance of the land. Which tribes get which regions, okay? That sure sounds like the Bible should like end there, at least as far as Abraham's promise. That they are possessing all of the land. But the problem you have is Judges, which is the next book over. And other passages too, Judges 1 21, it says, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel and Yahweh was with them. In other words, it sure sounds like they didn't completely own the land. And so again, there's a little bit of a theological debate or you just believe the Bible lies and it contradicts itself, but we don't believe that here. We believe that the, the writers of Scripture knew exactly what they were saying and doing because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, so if there's no contradiction here, what this seems to mean is that there was some kind of, let's say, a, a surface level. If you were just to look at the situation, Israel had dominance over this whole land. But when you looked at, uh, let's say, on the, the heart level, there was not a complete conquest in terms of every single individual person in that region was not subdued under, uh, under God's hand. Uh, not, not truly. The land was, you could maybe put it that way, like the land under their feet was under Israel's control. But as far as the people, as far as, as, far as these pagan nations, they were not completely 100% dealt with and they never really truly were. So again, it's a little bit of a thorny subject. So if you want to dive into some journal articles with me and commentaries, we can go through that together. And I think I could persuade you that, that there is um, no contradiction between there not being a total complete conquest of the land and a very, seems like a very obvious statement in Joshua 21 that Yahweh gave them the land that they promised, that he promised their fathers. Um, well, we can dissect that a little bit more. But we want to basically sum it up like this. So God was very faithful on his part to 
deliver them to the promised land just as he said he would. But it was the people that didn't necessarily completely um, own or, or partake of the land in a complete way because there were still people in that land who did not honor the Lord. And guess what? There was people in Israel, Israelites, who in their own heart did not completely submit and give their lives to the Lord. So in terms of what God imagines and embraces for Abraham and his promise to him, um, that the, your people will be a blessed people, to bless the whole land, the fullness of that does not seem to have taken place yet, but we see certainly a clear understanding that Yahweh had glorified himself and delivered victory into their hands against their enemies and brought peace. Um, you could even go to Solomon's day. At the height of the, his power, which is the height of Israel's power and influence, um, that there was not even then a complete domination of the land, not a complete um, eradication, you could say, of, of non-godly people and thoughts. In other words, we can say that there is still a future fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And this is what most of the prophets believe. You go to Jeremiah. I'm getting a little bit, um, a little bit detailed here, but in Jeremiah chapter 30, Part of the promise that he has, and Jeremiah uh, is prophesying at the time of the Babylonians coming in. So in terms of the timeline, Joshua is about 1400 BC. Jeremiah is preaching to a people around 600 BC. So that's a span of about 800 years. Is my math right there? I think that's right. About 800 years difference between them. And, and Jeremiah is saying that this has not happened yet that you have existed and dwelt in the land as I promised to Abraham. This is uh, Jeremiah 30, 1 through 3. The, the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says Yahweh, and I'll bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. And then the rest of Jeremiah, uh, if you recall, he will talk about a new covenant and a promise that, that Israel and Judah will be the center of the world and that his promises to them in terms of the land, in terms of the blessing, it will come to them in a, in a way that has not happened um, at the, till the time of Jeremiah, even up until now. Israel's never had that kind of position or place. In any case, we want to see that God does remember and keep his promises and his covenants. Sometimes we don't always see that God is working out his uh, promise and covenant, but one thing we want to understand is because the Bible doesn't end right here at Joshua, God is going, nothing can thwart God's purposes and plans. The story of the Old Testament is it over and over and over and over. The Israelites demonstrates how they are not worthy people to receive God's blessing and promise. They need a different heart. 
fundamentally, they cannot keep the promises of God. So if God truly wants them to be this blessed people, they need a new heart. And that's why God promised that one would come who gives new hearts. And that would be Jesus Christ. That by dying, rising again, he promises a new life. Just like it's a new life when you die and rise again, it's a new, you must have a new existence. And truly Jesus did. He offers that to everyone who believes in him. That's what they need. What every Jewish person, but every person in the world needs is a heart transplant. So God is going to be good to us despite us. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's the story of our lives. He keeps his promises, and oftentimes we need to remind ourselves of God's promises, both as um, to see them being fulfilled now, but also a future hope when we're in the midst of trials and tribulations that we can't possibly see how God is keeping his promises to remember. But, but God says these trials and tribulations are going to be worth it. That's the lifeline I'm going to cling to. Um, that's the hope that I have because I see God keep his promises over and over again as well in the midst of trials and tribulations. So that's a third application is just to remember that God is a covenant keeping God. God is a God who makes promises and he follows through. We see that in the past and we'll see that in the future. Fourthly, this is sort of the last application. Um, Joseph Parker, who I mentioned early, he, he has another comment about Joshua 11 and 12, and he says this. These two chapters contain a good deal of hard reading. <laughs> they are studded with unfamiliar and difficult words and names so that reading them is like reading the writing upon gravestone, gravestones in a foreign land. I like that imagery. Still, there is much for our instruction here. For example, we're called to behold how good a thing it is to keep a detailed record of life. These chapters are in a certain sense diaries or journals. The men of the ancient time wrote down what they did. That is to say, they kept their story freshly before their memories. They lost nothing. They wrote their accounts up to date. And at any given moment, they could peruse the record and derive from it the advantage of stimulus with such an exercise that could not fail to supply. This is a fancy way of saying they wrote things down so that they could go back and look at it and remember what God had done for them. You can make an application, I think, by looking at this record here, that there is something valuable about recording our successes. Now, that's obvious. Every ancient Near Eastern culture, the Hittites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Persians, everybody did this. You would write down in stone your victories and your successes. Everybody did that. But you know what the Israelites also did? And you know what Joshua also did? Recorded their failures and their failings. He could have just not, you know, Moses, he wrote numbers, we presume. And he had to write the section about his failure at Meribah, you know, kind of to, to detail that out. Joshua had to write out how they had failed the Lord in Ai and how they had screwed up by not vetting the Gibeonites. The whole rest of the Old Testament, you see a lot of the, the bad and the ugly, not just the good, of what the Israelites did, how they were faithless to the Lord. The whole book of Judges is just disappointment after disappointment. But there is something very much of grace and, and gospel to be able to talk about our failings as well as our successes and know 
that both can glorify God. Not that we're glorying that we were God-hating or that we made foolish choices, but that even in our mistakes and failings, God proved himself to be forgiving and to lift us up and to make use of us. So I think there's something to say. I know here we're just seeing the, the successes, uh, but let's remember that there's, we've seen plenty of failure. And you can go through almost, almost any passage in the Old Testament, any book you go through, there's going to be really shameful, embarrassing things about what the Israelites did. Almost every single book. Think about that. They weren't just writing down and remembering their successes and the highlight reel, like every other ancient Near Eastern culture did. Here, God very much wanted the people to remember that even in their failing, even in their disappointments, God was faithful because God is the hero. If I was just writing it, a story where I'm the hero, I'm going to downplay all of my failings or I'm going to somehow spin them so that I come out looking like the hero. That's what you see a lot nowadays. But no, for the Israelites, it's very much that they could say, you know, God is the one who's very good. I don't deserve it. We should not be ashamed of our testimony, even if it includes a lot of sin and failure. So on the one hand, yes, let us remember all the successes that God had made. And yes, we need to make maybe more of that at times than to dwell on our failings. But we don't need to be ashamed of our failings either, because that is part of how God made us and built us as recipients of grace too. If we are perfect, where's grace? So of, of course there's got to be some disappointments and failures in our life. Um, so uh, I think that is also another valuable application as we read this list. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to write down all the, the list of kings that you conquered. But like we did today, in, in beginning with a time of thankfulness, to just list out or think through, count your blessings, count them one by one. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good practice. I'm kind of convicting myself. I'm not a journal guy. And I always think, well, I haven't started journaling. If I start journaling now, it's going to start when I'm, you know, 42 years old. People are going to say, well, what happened the first 42 years? So I use that excuse, why well, don't keep, keep a journal uh, or something like that. But, um, you know, if I start now, I have something to pass on to my kids about when they were kids. You know, I, I shouldn't use that as an excuse or keeping a prayer journal um, and things like that. I very much commend that to you. God seems very interested in that kind of record keeping. So, um, but if you're not a journal writer, don't, don't feel guilty either. It's about grace. But those are just some applications that I think the Lord uh, brought to my mind via my own thoughts about the passage and also by some of these uh, commentators. If you have interesting applications, I would love to hear. You don't have to tell me right now. You've got to think about it a little bit. But next week or sometime during, during this week as you think about it, feel free to write me an email or talk about it over lunch with someone or share while we eat dinner uh, some of your thoughts on this passage and, and what it makes you think of in terms of honoring the Lord and glorifying Him. Ultimately, of course, our hearts need to be pointed to Jesus Christ. When we look at this list of kings, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But look at your life and the sins that you're struggling with, the people that are difficult in your life, uh, the temptations that you have. Those are the kings that need to be conquered. And just like Moses and Joshua had to rely on the Lord in order to have these victories, it's, it's a little bit of allegorizing, yes, but the, the point is true. You cannot overcome 
your sins and temptations. You cannot overcome these hard relationships and trials apart from the Lord because Jesus Christ is the only one who has conquered sin and death. That's why you can trust him to to come alongside you, empower you to conquer sin and death, to overcome yourself and your you know, snarky attitude towards your neighbor, um, to overcome the hang-ups you have about the stuff that happened to you in the past. All of that, Jesus Christ is the only solution because he's the only one who died and conquered sin and death by rising again from the dead. So just like I don't want to say Moses is the hero, Joshua is the hero, or David, or Daniel, or Pastor Uri, or, or Bing, God is the hero. If you're not a Christian today, you need him to be the center of your life. You need him to be the one that you trust to get you through because he did. He did. Jesus did. He conquered sin and death so he can conquer whatever sin and death lies around you. So with that in mind, let me pray and we'll close and have our time of fellowship in Koinonia. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words of encouragement, um, even if it's a list of kings whose names we can hardly pronounce and yet written in each name is a testimony. Of, of how you judge sin, of how you carry the believer through, of how you intend for us to trust you above and beyond all things about how you are a promise-keeping God. So I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just skirt past it, at least not too quickly, but instead realize that these men, these women, these children, these Israelites who would read this list, they would have known that this is saying something about you. So help our hearts to turn towards you as well, especially as we eat and drink. May it be to your glory that the things we discuss and share with each other would point each other to a hope and trust in you. So thank you, Lord, again for this time together. We pray your blessing on our, our time of fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.